The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. to be with you all the way from 30 degree weather in Michigan. <laughs> a little chilly this morning, but we made it to sunny Texas, the nation of Texas. Never been here. So uh, I don't know what is the, I don't understand the stop, like why they're sideways. <laughs> they wrecked my vehicle. So uh, I just want to say I'm grateful because for me to get here, I had some generosity going on from people of our church and family and friends. So that's why I'm here. So I am absolutely thankful for them uh, and helping me get here. Uh, but I wanna just kinda get right in the gospel and the ethical imperative of abolition. So that's what I'm calling this message. We live in a culture of death, a world where little humans are assassinated every single day. We live in a world where pre-born children have their limbs torn from them and their body parts sold for gain. We live in a world where the most helpless neighbors among us are poisoned and then disposed of. This world we live in allows murder to take place while simultaneously making attempts at redefining what is actually taking place. Abortion is murder and the butchering continues unabated. We live in a world where little men and women have their skulls crushed on a daily basis. Let that sink in. We also live in a world where most Christians, it seems, don't do anything about it. Save for an annual sermon from a pastor we might as well call lip service. After all, pastors are caught between a rock and a hard place, take seriously the kingdom of God and upset their financial donors and, and maybe even lose their job or keep the rhetoric tamed down and don't rock the boat. Jesus said to count the cost, right? Count the cost. And I think it is evident what decision most of them make. Furthermore, the Christians that do attempt to do something about the Holocaust are ostracized and slandered by the gatekeeping elite, elites of evangelicalism and actually the very majority of the people who aren't doing anything to see the slaughter end. So this is our culture, this is our world right now. It won't be our world, our reality someday, but for now this is the world that Jesus has come to save. Amen. And we would do well to understand it for what it is, not what we pretend it isn't. One of the most devastating critiques of evangelicalism today is found in our very own scriptures. Imagine that, religious people have something to repent of. The verse in question is found in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 22, and it goes like this. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. In other words, true faith, true belief in the gospel is faith that works itself out in obedience to God's law word. I'll say it again. True faith 
is faith that works itself out in obedience to God's law word. To be a doer of the word is to be a covenantal man. And to be a covenantal man is to take that which the gospel gives you and produce results. So we are after economic productivity in every realm, all of Christ for all of life. That's our mantra at our church in little old Carroll, Michigan. All of Christ for all of life. That's just what the gospel, when you properly understand it, does. But before I unpack the gospel of the kingdom, I want to help us understand that which presupposes the gospel, namely the problem of sin and fallen men in a rebellious world. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve, he offered them several things. To begin, when he told them, you surely will not die, Satan questioned God's predestinating activity in the world, um, God's predestinating governance of man. You know, God isn't sovereign. God isn't in charge of all things. And thus, you know, God's law is arbitrary, and, and, and God's world is completely unpredictable. Uh, God's decrees are, are meaningless, and, and the consequences for disobeying God's law, they're not really legitimate. The world is free for man to explore, to, to make his own meaning, to be a, become a law unto himself, Satan urges, because you won't die. God's just jealous. Satan continues, because God's law can be questioned, it is clear then that God wants to just frustrate men and, and prevent men from, from self-discovery. To obey God's law, it's enslavement, Satan reasons. Therefore, to be a truly liberated man, one must disregard the commands of God. In Satan's economy, law is oppression, rebellion is freedom. Satan was the first anarchist. He was also the first statist. By the way, do you know what the difference is between an anarchist and a statist? A necktie. <laughs> One just looks a little nicer, but they are both the fruit of lawlessness. At any rate, the politics of rebellious humanity stems from another presupposition of Satan. You won't die, right? You won't die. Besides, God knows that when you eat of that tree, Adam and Eve, you'll be like God. That is, you become God. And, and you'll be able to determine good and evil like God does. It's not enough to disregard God's law. One must establish his own law, his own Godhead, in place of it. Man, essentially, in rebellion against God, he must assert his own sovereignty, and he has to develop his own theology. Thus, the war in our culture. The pantheon sounds great until there are too many gods calling the shots. Neutrality is like juggling knives. Eventually, someone's going to get hurt. The final stage of man's rebellion comes here in Genesis 3, when man longs to become his own determiner of law. Autonomy was the promise of Satan. No more transcendent sovereignty of God. No more oppressive laws. Uh, good and evil can be shaped however uh, you think. Thus the philosophy of Sartre. Man is not a creature of God. Man makes his own existence. Sartre would argue that a loss of freedom of choice is really what is evil. Undermine God, you'll be fine. These elements are the problems we see facing us right now in this nation. God isn't sovereign, his law is no good, and his governance is unwise. God needs our help. And herein lies the tension. 
Does the gospel that we hold to, does the gospel that Jesus proclaimed have anything to do with resolving the problems from Genesis 3? And the answer is, of course, yes. The kingdom of God is the covenantal social order of heaven coming to bear on earth. The good news isn't simply that forgiveness of sins can be had. Uh, it's not simply about a ticket to heaven being punched. The good news is for the world, all the world, and everything in the world. It does answer the problem of Genesis 3, for the gospel establishes that God is sovereign, that God's law is good and just and right, and not only that, God's governance of the world does in fact matter, and Jesus is very much interested in what is going on in the here and now. Amen. Yes, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, but anything less, anything less than the salvation of men and his institutions culture and productivity, anything less than that is a truncated gospel. And a truncated gospel, unfortunately, is what passes in most churches today. Jesus' message is boiled down to a simple prayer so you can go to heaven when you die, which we look forward to, but is that all? And that's not even merely just asserted, it's staunchly defended. How can you possibly go to the abortion mill? Jesus just wants us to preach the gospel. Never get caught up in changing culture. Okay, let's run with that. Did Noah just preach the gospel when he told everyone to repent or they would drown? Did, did Moses just, just preach the gospel when, when he, he demanded that Pharaoh, a magistrate, release God's people and learn his role? Did Joshua just preach the gospel when the Canaanites were vomited out of the land for transgressing God's law? Did all of the prophets, let's go to the prophets, did they just preach the gospel? How, how, how about Elijah, who, who took the sword to the priests of Baal? Did he, at any point during that slaughter, ask them to invite Jesus into their hearts? <laughs> what about John the Baptist? Did he just preach the gospel when he told Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her? Yeah. Did, did Jesus just only preach the gospel when he excoriated the Pharisees for being a bunch of half-wit ninnies? The problem with this line of thinking is that the gospel is truncated to the point where it does nothing for the here and the now. It is situated only in eternity and it does nothing for a person in history. That is the average, ostensible evangelical's gospel. But the gospel is not some detached concept that is, is otherworldly. It's not detached from God's covenantal ordering and plan for the world either. Those who fail to see how the gospel actually impacts all things are those who fail to grasp the all-encompassing nature of the good news of the kingdom of God. Proclaiming the substitution of Christ in the gospel in a world stained by sin necessarily entails that we point out the folly of all other false atonements. Everyone is looking for a blood sacrifice somewhere. Since this is God's covenantal world, nothing is neutral. Since nothing is neutral, atonement is inescapable. Since atonement is inescapable, we must say that the true gospel we proclaim is this. 
Adoption by propitiation. We are adopted into sonship by Christ's atonement. His blood is the only true atonement, the only true adoption. The, the blood of children left in the wake of Roe cannot atone for our sins. It's a false atonement. And the proclamation of the gospel in this culture of death means that we must show where true atonement lies. One of the problems when it comes to the church's understanding of the relationship between the gospel and abolitionist ideology is the issue of abolition itself. Christians fail to see how the gospel connects to our work in the world. When Christ came, he did so as the ultimate abolitionist. He came to put an end to Satan's sin and, and death. The gospel announcement is all about abolition. In fact, the gospel announcement is very simple. The abolitionist has come, and he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is our atonement. This is our only atonement. An atonement is uniquely tied to God's standards, his, his ethical, judicial governance of the world. Since God's laws, uh, his law sets the terms and conditions... And since God imputes meaning and jurisdiction and purpose for his creation, the gospel fits into the same paradigm. The gospel is about atonement, and atonement is about justice. After all, the foundation of God's throne is righteousness and justice. Because God is the transcendent lawgiver, man is underneath his authority. For the rebellious man, the curse of sin enslaves him. It's all he knows. He isn't neutral. And he isn't a friend of God. He is an enemy of God. Therefore, the blood guilt lies upon him. Rebellious man needs an atonement. He owes a debt and he can't pay it. So where does he go to get it? The mill. Instead of trusting in the blood of Christ, rebellious men trust in the blood of infants. And because God's law hangs over rebellious man, furthering his rebellion, shining a light on his sin, God will deal with this person in history and in hell. There are two ways in which God destroys his enemies. He either converts them and makes them a friend, or he breaks them so that they are no longer relevant in history. This is true justice. The problem comes in when we talk about defining ethics and justice in our culture. Everyone wants to talk about justice. No one wants to do the hard thing to get there, including actually defining it in accordance with the law of God and carrying it out to his parameters. Justice is the natural outworking of the gospel. Justice and, and biblical ethics applied is gospel applied. Jesus is Lord, and it matters that the civil magistrates obey him yep. for Psalm 2. Yes, the, the gospel is about God saving sinners for heaven. But no, that's not all it is. Right. The good news of Christ enthroned means that what goes on in his world matters. Yep. It is, after all, the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of Christ, scepter and all. Thus, thus we are to contend for the faith in all areas of life. Our neighbors are under attack, therefore the gospel is under attack, and we are supposed to be on the offensive. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, which means that if you must talk about two kingdoms, it's not a kingdom of man over here and Christ's kingdom over there. There is Christ's king in heaven, kingdom in heaven, and Christ's kingdom on earth. The two are one. 
And in reality, they will become one cohesive thing. But notice what Revelation 11, 15 says. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Has, as in the gospel, has established this fact in history. Amen. So in short, Jesus is Lord. And our job is to make everyone else upset about it. Come on. <laughs> Jesus didn't die to get his church so she could sit on her hands and remain idle. If the gospel that you claim to believe in your head hasn't compelled you and moved you to labor for justice with your hands, guess what? You don't understand the true gospel. Amen. The problem with Christians anymore is that we're... <laughs> The problem is, we're not getting thrown out of places anymore. <laughs> and, and honestly, that's because we're not saying anything significant. But here we stand and we say, Jesus is Lord. But you can't say, Jesus is Lord, while simultaneously refusing to press his crown rights into everything. And this is the error of the two kingdom folks. That all, they want all the glory of Christ's dominion, but they want to manage it on their dualistic terms. When we say that Jesus is Lord, we are saying that Jesus gets to tell Caesar what to do. Amen. And what Caesar needs to do is end abortion now. Amen. You can't have it both ways, church. You can't say that Jesus is King of Kings, but not really Kings. You cannot claim the Lordship of Christ over everything in your theology and then castrate that authority by really believing, well, well, he's not Lord over that. When we say that Jesus is Lord over Caesar and that Caesar must protect the preborn, we are declaring war on the gods of this age. And the gods of this, of this age are the secular humanists. Because the tomb is empty, Babies must be rescued. Because Jesus walked out of the tomb with authoritative, gospel-centered swagger, secularism and all of her pretended neutrality has lost. The powers, the powers that the humanists think that they have are really just pretend powers anyway. The triumph of Christ over the grave is simultaneously the triumph of Christ over the powers and the principalities. And this means that all the humanists are impotent because history belongs to God's people. Listen, regarding abortion, the kingdom of God wants nothing to do with incremental compromise. The kingdom of God wants nothing to do with incremental compromise. It wants nothing to do with partial dominion in the world. The gospel, the gospel of the kingdom is comprehensive and that because the world is in comprehensive sin. When sin has touched everything, the gospel goes and touches everything. Because Jesus is Lord, our job is to announce that in this capital city, this new king, he's enthroned now. Hallelujah. He bought the world with his blood, and now that world, our world, belongs to us, the church, his meek children. And nothing short in the kingdom of God, nothing short of worldwide conquest will do. And incrementalism is at odds with the gospel because Jesus didn't just sort of die only and only somewhat defeat death. He abolished death. And therefore, we must abolish human abortion. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, he did it with the entire world in mind. And because the kingdom was breaking in, it's now the political assembly's job, the 
you know, that thing we call church, the political assembly, were to rid the land of idols, gut the pantheons, and reconstruct society based upon the law word of God. Okay. In other words, you don't, you don't get to say, you don't get to say, Jesus is Lord. And then follow that up with, well, you know, I'm just, I'm not into politics. No, when we say Jesus is Lord over this, that, and everything, guess what? You're already involved in politics. So here are our options. Here are our options, and you, you know this. One, Jesus doesn't really care about abortion. He doesn't really have an opinion on it. He's just, you know, whatever. Two, Jesus, he's fine with it. Or three, he hates it with a holy, fierce, righteous hatred. Come on. And he wants it to be abolished now. Yeah. And, and how the church at large has responded to this is, seems to be that they're okay with option one or two. If it were option three, we would have millions and millions of Christians demanding the complete abolition of abortion in this country. Bring it, Lord. Since there is no neutrality in this world, we're either going to make war against this thing, this child sacrifice, and then we will be at peace with God, or we will find ourselves okay and at peace with child sacrifice and find ourselves at odds with God. And sadly, the modern church has adopted the latter. God hates the hands that shed innocent blood, and most Christians seem to be fine with what God hates. To summarize where we've been thus far, the gospel is about the kingdom of God on earth. The kingdom has this ethics and this judge, the, the ethical judicial aspect to it. It's about righteousness. It's about justice in the world that God has established his son to oversee. Abolition stems from the Lamb of God, who is the abolitionist par excellence. He, and, and because of the kingdom of God is present, it's a present reality with Christ's lordship at the helm. Abortion must go. Amen. It must be stopped. It must end because it violates the commands of our holy God. But I'm not done yet. The problems that abolitionists are up against are twofold. <clears throat> we live in a society completely at odds with the gospel and thus completely at peace with killing children. Two. We have churches that are apathetic and unmoved. Regarding society at large, abolitionists want the lordship of Christ to be acknowledged. That's what we're after. Yes. That's why the gospel is one of our, our tenets. We are abolitionists because we refuse to compromise with our secular overlords who, who just want a little bit of Christianity, just a little dash of that in this recipe. But for us, we're not content with that. All of it must be Christian because Christ is Lord. Including the right to live and not be murdered. So that's why the gospel is preached at the abortion mill. As far as society is concerned, there was a shift. There was a change in how this is talked about. The, the, there was a move in our culture. We take, take sins that are explicitly, explicit in Scripture. And, and we, we politicize them a bit and shift them around and and we throw in this whole, you know, separation of church and state. A little bit of neutrality doesn't hurt, right? So we throw that in. Murder then becomes choice. Theft becomes, you know, taxation. <laughs> <laughs> Homosexuality becomes marriage. You see how the twist is? Yeah. 
so because we love the gospel and we desire King Jesus to be acknowledged, we will not play that game. Amen. We refuse to let a culture at odds with Christ redefine the world. We will not allow tyranny to work itself in disguise. We will not go to the, we're not going to go with the pro-life movement and downplay what this is. If pro-life means, you know, we organize a website, you know, throw some dollars in an executive and, and keep kicking the can down the street, then no one should be pro-life. Amen. Amen. We are abolitionists because the gospel demands it. Yeah. Come on. But what about the church? Yes, we're at odds with people who hate God because people who hate God, Scripture says, love death. I mean, that's just, it kind of goes hand in hand. But what about the church? Peter says judgment starts with the house of God. And that's not a term of endearment. One of the biggest problems is the gospel-centered movement. The empty rhetoric of the latest evangelical fad of, of being gospel-centered is nothing more than another ploy to keep the church looking busy. True gospel-centeredness is not... You hear? You're listening, right? True gospel-centeredness is not a blog article about the doctrines of grace. True gospel-centered living is actually doing what the cross did, right. intervention. Yeah. When, when we as kings and priests intervene to rescue our pre-born neighbors from death, we are in fact mimicking the gospel. Now you can write books about being gospel-centered all you want, and it won't mean a thing. Not until a person actually and physically intervenes, interposes, does one become truly gospel-centered. Yeah. That's right. So don't tell me you have a gospel-centered church when you do nothing to intervene for our most helpless Don't tell me you have a gospel-centered church when all you pursue is favor with the world, comfort, and all the pietistic drivel you can suck up. The gospel is about the kingdom. And the kingdom, my friends, is about power, yeah. not talk. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So we're up against a culture that loves death, and we're up against a church that's obsessed with Jesus' calling. We have feminists. We have feminists who are inconsistent and bloodthirsty, just like their fearless leader, Cecil. And we have churches. We have churches whose eschatology is escapology, a view of the world that renders them useless in the here and now. <laughs> the elite members of the evangelical ministerial complex sit in their ivory towers and slander abolitionists who are soldiers in Christ's army and the constituents of said tower ministries uh, think that by sending money to their favorite 501c3 ministries that they're helping things. Sure, they don't like abortion, but they don't hate it enough to quit perpetuating the cycle of apathy. Right. And on and on we go on the pro-life merry-go-round. Are we having fun? Uh, no. And then there's the incrementalists. We've mentioned them already. The Havsies, who yeah. think that their partisan politics are better than nothing. The problem with incrementalism is that it invites the judgment of God. Right. It tries to manage sin instead of repent of it right. immediately. Right. And you can't manage a flood that comes with 10,000 foot waves. What are you going to do? Abortion must be abolished as quickly as death was abolished when Christ said it is finished. And anything short of immediate abolition is a continual provocation of our long-suffering God. Wow. And to the world we say, repent and believe. To the church, guess what? Same message, repent and believe. 
Uh -oh. And abolition is a way of life rooted in the gospel. It's, it's obedience to God. It's taking up your cross in the everyday. To be a Christian is to be committed to the gospel. To be committed to the gospel is to be committed to justice. We are Christians, which that means we are to rescue. Amen. And the reason the gospel of Christ necessitates abolition is because of the very nature of the gospel is abolition. Abolition simply means the application of the claims of Christ to everything Christ claims. Okay? Abolition simply means the application of the claims of Christ to everything Christ claims. Yeah. If it is true, and it is, that Christ owns the state, then the state must obey Christ's claim on it. Yeah. If, if Christ owns the church, then the church, church must obey Christ's claim on her too. If Christ lays claim to everything in the world, from individuals to governments and every single institution in between, then the only thing left for us to do is to press the claims of Christ into those areas. Amen. That is the gospel and the ethical imperative of abolition. And here's the thing. I'll close with this. We're not fighting because we love to fight. We are fighting because we love truth, and truth is being assailed. Yeah. And what we want is for Christians to be left alone and our neighbors to be left alone. We love God and neighbor that much. And the problem is our most vulnerable neighbors are being ripped apart limb from limb, and, and now we are going to have to get rowdy about it. Yeah. We didn't go looking for a fight. The fight was brought to us. Yeah. And so here we stand. And I think I can, you can agree with me. We will not be quiet. Right. Yeah. We will not go away until the last Planned Parenthood doors are locked for the final time. Amen. Which is to say, Jesus is Lord and we mean it. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father, we as a nation have rebelled against your statutes. We have spit upon your law and regarded quite readily iniquity in all of our hearts. We as abolitionists are first in the repentance line, for we too are guilty of much of the same sins. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, I beg of you to grant repentance to this nation. Yes, Lord. Give repentance to the church, but also give it to this country. And, and we have continued the slaughter, and we deserve nothing short of fiery judgment. We have trampled your law. We have trampled. Trampled your law. We've forgotten about your mercy, so help us, Lord. Help us by raising up legislatures with steel in their spine and courage in their hearts. And may they stand against the Holocaust by fulfilling their roles as magistrates under your authority. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.
Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.